know, I once had a mentor tell me that the prize for winning the donut eating competition is more donuts. Things don't necessarily get easier and the kind of more you do, the more you have to do. And I think that's been something that I've learned along the way, you know, with every fundraise or every new milestone, you're kind of recommitting to your customers, to your employees, to your investors that you're going to like get to that next phase now. And I think I had a notion that it would get easier, but I think in reality, the stakes almost only get higher and it gets harder. Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm Dan Murray-Serta and this is the best place to learn about entrepreneurship from the people who are creating the world's great companies. Today, I'm really excited to be talking to Jeff Kolovson, the co-founder and COO at FAIR. Now, FAIR is a wholesale marketplace worth billions that allows independent brands to connect with and sell through independent shops. They want the small guys to be able to compete with the Amazons and Walmarts of the world. I loved hearing about Jeff's time at Square, the fintech giant, working directly with Jack Dorsey. Also, why he left FAIR, his own company, shortly after co-founding it, and why he returned, and how he manages his OCD. But before all of that, let's find out a little about where Jeff came from. I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, which is kind of a, a town in New England that is probably most famous for being the insurance capital of the world. Um, it's where a bunch of insurance companies were based. So maybe not the most exciting place to grow up, but it grew up outside of it, a great suburb. And my mom was, was an occupational therapist, so she worked primarily with kids with disabilities. And then my dad actually ran our family business, and our family business was making mattresses and futons. So my great-grandfather started it and literally delivering mattresses you know, kind of on the top of his car as family lore goes. Of course, yeah. His name wasn't Casper, was it? No, it wasn't. Although I will tell you that when Casper launched, it created a lot of chatter in my family, my broader family. I can family. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> the dynasty, the mattress dynasty. I actually remember before Casper, we, my brother and I were like, should we move mattresses online? It seems like you know, if there's any story we can tell, he was also in, in technology at the time. And actually it was Jacket Square who kind of convinced me not to start uh, online mattress company. I think it only been at Square a year, a year and a half. And it seemed like uh, not a good endeavor, which I will say in retrospect, there have been various times where I maybe wished I had, but I think I am now very, very glad that we didn't do that. Hindsight 2020. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was you know a family business and, and my dad and my uncle ran it. And I think I probably didn't appreciate it at the time, but it really was. I don't think they or my dad would use the word entrepreneurship or that kind of nomenclature, but it definitely was the first time I was exposed to ownership, you know, having something you take pride in. I think both, you know, the upside and, and that element to it, as well as the stress and the grind of it was very clear to me. And so it probably was the seeds of me wanting to do things that were more my own and, and kind of more an entrepreneurship in, in startup world. I don't think they, my parents or our broader family really wanted us to go into the business or to get passed down for another generation. I think they felt like it was maybe too difficult or our interests were elsewhere and they didn't want to kind of influence us back. But it, it was definitely a kind of salient part of my childhood and it was, you know, very present. And I think when I got to university, there was probably a reason that we gravitated towards, you know, a furniture rental business, um, even though we actually didn't use my family's mattresses or futons. We used another supplier because it was better pricing and easier. But the link was clearly there. And that was, you know, one of probably the, the two or three most important elements of university for me and what I think kind of put me on an entrepreneurship track. I ran the company with three close friends and it was essentially the university I went to was on the trimester system and folks were constantly kind of studying abroad. So you're always, you know, living here, 
then moving and living here and then moving and living here. And basically at the beginning of any trimester, you would go to Walmart or some other store and buy a bunch of stuff for your dorm room. And at the end, you would literally throw it out. And you would start the whole process over again, especially if you're moving. And the business was, we would rent it for you for the quarter, we'd store it, and then we'd rent it to you or to somebody else. And you know, I don't think we necessarily understood it or spoke about it in these terms, but what we were essentially doing is arbitraging the fact that at the end of a term, you value a futon at negative $30. I would pay somebody $30 to get this thing out of my room. <laughs> yeah, big time. And there are big, there are student businesses on just like futon throwing away and moving. And so I value it at negative $30. You know, the last day when I'm moving out, I'm just finished exams. Uh, maybe I'm pretty tired. Get me out of here. Here's some money, get this thing out. But then, you know, four weeks later, or if it was over the summer, eight weeks later, that same futon is now worth $120. Um, I actually pay to have that futon for the next 10 weeks again. Again, I don't think we totally understood. We were, you know, arbitraging the, the delta and the price over that time period, but the opportunity there was clear. And so for my last two years of university, we kind of ran that business, ended up selling it my senior year. And now there's actually a bunch of furniture and futon rental companies at that university and others. I feel like they're popping up everywhere. And it, it is a great way to kind of get exposed to entrepreneurship. You're, you're doing everything end to end from sales and marketing, which is, you know, emailing or running booths at parents weekend to, you know, actually delivering them. You know, we delivered them ourselves. We made them to the customer support, picking them up, disposing of them, hopefully correctly filing taxes and everything in between. And I also think that probably my favorite story, and I do think, you know, I, and I can talk about it in a minute. I ended up, you know, trying banking, trying consulting. And I think that experience of running my own business, my own business, doing so with my friends, the ownership, the enjoyment, just like the fun, how much I enjoyed doing it was a big part of the thread that kind of kept tugging and, and leading me back to entrepreneurship and, and startup land. And I even think from, from just breaking into it, having that experience was helpful. You know, I'd always tell the story of people saying, you know, what was the funnest moment? And I think it would surprise them because it was also our hardest moment where I remember we were expanding. We were super excited about expanding and we were growing the business and we'd ordered all these more futons. I think we had like 60 futons coming you know, like three days before we were going to start classes and we had kind of this whole delivery schedule. We had kind of already gotten folks uh, who were going to rent them and we were expecting them to come at like you know 7 a.m. Thursday, begin deliver deliveries on Saturday. And one of my partners who was in charge of kind of sourcing them, he was like, yeah, the futons are going to arrive. They're going to be fully constructed. We'll put them in our storage unit and then we'll start delivering them. You know, in retrospect, it's almost nonsensical to think that futons are going to come fully constructed. Like this huge truck is going to pull up and futons were already built and ready to go. And the notion of that as like a delivery mechanism doesn't make a ton of sense. But I remember very vividly standing in front of our storage unit, the kind of truck pulling up. It was just me because there are, uh, the companies, you know, going to put these fully assembled futons into the storage unit. And the guy kind of lifted up the back of the truck and it was just these super slender boxes of each futon clearly unassembled. I just remember staring at them and thinking, oh, wow, we're going to have to build all these futons in the next 36 hours. And you can't, you can't not do it because you know, the business was predicated on trust. People are already a little bit suspicious of student-run businesses. It's kind of like if you miss the window, you're going to erode a lot of, of the equity with, with your customers in the business. And I remember calling my partners being like, these futons are not, they're not even close to constructed. They're like in the slenderest little boxes you can imagine. And we have a storage unit full of like 60 or 80 unassembled futons. And each one takes like 45 minutes to make. So what did you do? You got 45 minutes, you got 36 hours. How many did you guys get through? Three of you? There are four of us, three partners and myself. We got through them all and 
part of the lesson in that moment is there just isn't much of a substitute for just putting your head down in hard work and grinding it out. You know, we definitely had the, the brainstorm of what are all the creative ways we can do kind of what are the shortcuts here? Can we push back deliveries? And there were some things we could do. Like, you know, we ended up constructing them in the basement of where we we're delivering and we got a couple um, folks to help us. But at the end of the day, it was put your head down and build futons for the next 36 hours. And it was kind of this, seminal moment as well. We were expanding and it was this thing going to survive in our second year of running it. We just put our head downs and we built, you know, I think more futons than four people, six people had built in 36 hours ever. Um, and we had fun while doing it too. You know, we had a scoreboard, we were timing it. I think that that was another important lesson for me was if you're going to kind of put your head down in those moments, you have to be able to enjoy it. There has to be enough things about the people or the mission or the content that you're deriving kind of motivation and enjoyment for because startups in general, when you're doing things, they're just too hard. Like if you don't have those other elements that are motivating for you and kind of amplifying whatever it is about it that you like, you're, you're not going to survive. And um, the funny kind of epilogue is the person who owns the storage unit, we obviously got to know because we were there all the time. And I think when we sold the company and we were graduating, he showed us, he was like, I got to show y'all something pretty funny. And he showed us security footage because he obviously had security footage. And he was like, at first I was wondering what the heck you guys were doing all night because, you know, we had two cars pointing and letting us up. He's like, and then I figured it out and I just thought it was very enjoyable. So I recorded it for you and kind of played it on fast time for us. And it was just 36 hours of, of pure chaos, the futon building. So who did you sell it to? How did that process come about? Like, was it a good exit for you guys? Like, what did you do with the money? Like, you know, you're young guys with an exit. It's unusual. So like, what do you do from that point? Yeah, I mean, it was it was not an exit in the you know Silicon Valley or technology world sense of the exit, but we, we did sell the business. Well, weirdly, for- <laughs> weirdly, we didn't think that with a futon <laughs> business, but you know, I know you thought I uh, obviously made you know we'd raised VC money for the futon business and then we'd sold it. We sold it our senior year, and you know, a couple of businesses and, and that business had been sold before, and we basically you know ran a process where we had underclassmen bid at it. We you know did our best to make a model of what it was worth. It was, it's funny in retrospect, because we still have some of those books we made. And every once in a while, one of us will stumble upon and he'll send. And we were looking back on it. And I, I wouldn't say we were the best at modeling the business. I remember once we looked at it and we were like, how is this thing so profitable? This is the most profitable business ever. And then somebody pointed out, you guys aren't paying yourself anything. So basically, the, the entire management team and all the labor isn't in there. So it's no wonder it's showing that it's so profitable. But we sold it to, to some underclassmen who continued growing it. And it was enough money to, after college, not be stressed. Uh, you know, I didn't start a job for about nine or 10 months after. I actually did some volunteer work down in South America, kind of in the microfinance space. And it was essentially enough money to kind of de-risk that period and give me some freedom um, and the rest of us some freedom to, to do some interesting things before we started our job. I went to South America and worked at a startup that was working kind of in the microfinance financial inclusion space. And that is kind of what my coursework and what I studied at university was economic development and financial inclusion, kind of with a focus on, you know, how can you use technology or creative financial instruments to help people and maybe specifically help folks that hadn't had access before to these different instruments. My work was specifically down there focused on kind of education in the microfinance space, but it kind of permitted me to have, you know, four or five months living down there, traveling around a little bit before I had to, as you put it, actually start life. And what did you do next? So while I was at university, I had interned at a bank and kind of done the you know investment banking for private equity internship. And I think I probably did it, if I'm being honest and reflecting, because it was 
I think these universities and, and lots of schools have a way to kind of funnel you towards a, a few different things. And it probably felt like the path of least resistance and the, the thing people were trying to achieve and maybe the prestigious ring to grab. And so I think I, I probably gravitated towards that a little bit. You know, it was full of really smart people, really interesting work. I wasn't that interested in it. And I think I, I pretty quickly realized that it wasn't for me. And some of the things I was doing that were more entrepreneurial in my life at the time where I wanted to spend more of my focus. And when I was graduating and when I was you know, spending some time volunteering, I think I was trying to figure out how I can break into startup world. And it might seem kind of obvious, but you know, 15 years ago, graduating from university, it wasn't that clear how to break into startups and how you can kind of find your way into interesting entrepreneurship opportunities. Um, I certainly didn't feel ready to start a company. I think the only company that recruited or was looking for fresh new grads, at least I was aware of my university was Google. And I didn't even really get, I didn't get an interview. I submitted my resume and didn't get an interview. So I gravitated towards consulting. And my thesis, my, my reasoning for doing it was then that allowed me to get into startups. And from there, I can kind of find my way into startups. I was kind of half right. I got a great skill set, but I wouldn't say startups loved hiring consultants, at least back then. So it took me some time to break in. And I was at you know one of the big consulting firms, McKinsey, it was a great experience. I, I learned a ton. That said, I, I wasn't the best consultant. I don't think I was uh, the best consultant that, that they ever had. And after about a year, I also felt like I wasn't learning as much. I was kind of now learning how to be a great consultant versus you know, maybe how to operate in, in a startup. And so about a year in, I kind of started looking for what that step would be that you know, could help me learn better how to be an entrepreneur and, and find a, a company that could do that. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. And so how did you get onto Square? How did you meet Jack Dorsey? How did that all come about? 
I actually first heard about Square through some work I had done in the financial inclusion practice while I was consulting. Because Square at its kind of core, and particularly its first products, really was a financial inclusion product. It, it, it took all these people who couldn't accept credit cards before and said, actually, all the reasons that you couldn't accept credit cards before are silly. Now you can. And that might sound quaint or, or benign, but if you're a, a small business owner, if you're just starting out, most people want to pay with credit cards. If you can't accept credit cards, you lose sales. And kind of being precluded from participating in that in that part of the financial economy can actually be quite harmful. And Square you know, virtually eliminated all those barriers. And so that was where I first heard about it. And it kind of spoke to some of the, the work I had done in economic development, my desire to be at a company that I kind of was intrinsically motivated by and felt like had social impact. And then it was also just an unbelievable startup that had, you know, it was probably, it was only about six months after it had launched at that point. And so it was probably like 50 people, but it was very clear whether it was, you know, Jack, the CEO or our COO, that even if the thing didn't work, I was going to learn a ton. Like there are awesome entrepreneurs there that I could learn from. So pretty quickly became the only company that I was really pursuing. And it took a little while to convince them to hire me. I think they weren't super excited about, you know, consulted with one year experience who appeared to not be succeeding uh, at his current company and, and was trying to, to break into startups. And it probably took like four or five months of convincing and you know, meeting the COO and meeting other folks to finally kind of get an opportunity. And I had to kind of, you know, drop my ego and basically take any role that I could have there. But I had the mindset and certainly gotten the advice of, you know, just get in the door. Don't let your ego get in the way about your title, who you're reporting to, what you're working on. If you really believe in the company and the people, the most important thing is to just get there. That's awesome. Okay, so take us through your career at Square. I guess what I want to know is what did you achieve? What did you learn? Why did you leave? Let's start with those three questions. Yeah, I mean, I think Square was basically a tour de force of learning. You know, I joined when it was 50 or 100, somewhere between that, you know, nine months after it had launched its first product. I left when it was a 2,000-person public company. And it did an incredible job, I think, of attracting senior talent, of creating an entrepreneurial environment that kind of rewarded people seeking out spaces and, and, and solutions and, and problems. And so the five years that, that I spent there, that my co-founders spent there as well, learned a ton. I would say a couple things stick out and were certainly different than I had learned before. The first was mission and culture and not culture and kind of the culture is important and, and everybody should care about it. But the ability that you can really take a mission driven organization and motivate people. You know, we used to do our all hands every Friday from like four to 5 PM, I think initially. So it was kind of like happy hour and, um, and all hands and you'd go through the normal stuff. You do all hands, your metrics and We'd close and often Jack would close with every week or then a little bit less frequently as, as we got bigger and talking about our customers or our mission and what we're really trying to achieve in the world. And even if you were kind of the most cynical person in the world sitting there and maybe you kind of roll your eyes at the mission the first time you heard it or you were a new employee, but as you got more exposure to customers, as you kind of heard more of really the vision of what we were trying to do and the impact it had on our, on our customers, it was so motivating. You know, you'd fit, it'd be 5 p.m. on a Friday, you know, 24. And yet all you wanted to do when you were done was just go work. It felt like you had just gotten like a halftime speech at a game to go out there. And, you know, when you're in like a consulting firm or a bank, there's just no notion of that. You can't really rally people around, you know, some mission or motivation there. And so for me, it was, it was so eye-opening to understand that you can take the same level of kind of buy-in and 
mission-driven motivation that you would see at like you know a sports team, for example, and apply it authentically to a company. And I do think you know authenticity is the key point there. And that was maybe one of the other lessons that I learned at Square, which was you have to do it authentically. Your mission has to be authentic, and then you know, kind of you as a leader expressing it, or people can sniff that out. I think if there's you know one thing that people don't follow. And if there's one thing that's like a universal trait in people is the ability to kind of tell when somebody's playing a role or being a phony. So I think the expression of the mission being authentic and you kind of authentically executing against it, as well as, and it's a slightly separate point, but you know, your leadership style then being authentic. And I thought Square did an amazing job of this, both on the mission side and then, you know, the leaders from Jack on down, they, they were themselves. You know, you never thought in the private moments versus the public moments were never any different. And I think that was another really big lesson that I took from the organization and something that we try our best to do at FAIR. You know, part of the reason we gravitated towards the idea of FAIR versus other things that, you know, we were kicking around is the impact on customers and how mission-driven it felt and how kind of like aligned with our values. And so, you know, we do our best to emulate that. I don't think we're, we're quite there, but we do our best to kind of emulate and, and make people feel that way about what we're building. Okay, so what is FAIR? What was FAIR's mission when you first launched? What was the insight that you had that no one else had that like, would, would basically motivate you all to leave such a cushy job, well-paid, I presume, and go start a company like this? You know, I think it was born out of the experience that we had at Square, and maybe specifically Max, my co-founder, had run an umbrella company on the side while we were at Square, and so he had actually been a brand and he had had the firsthand experience of going to trade shows, trying to sell in kind of an independent emerging brand into independent retail, local retail. And at the same time, I actually, one of the things I did at Square was run the trade show team. So at some point, me and my team were going to you know 50 trade shows a year, probably more. And I think we were both struck by the juxtaposition of the exposure that we got to the wholesale market, how you know local retailers, independent retailers and brands bought and sold goods and what we were doing at Square, which was leveraging technology to build products that, you know, had a meaningful impact on small businesses and, you know, how powerful that could be. And I think as we, we dug in a little bit more, there's probably a couple insights, maybe two, one a little bit more technical and, and one a little more kind of thematic around retail. I think the first on, on the more technical side was we're not geniuses. We weren't the first people to wander around a trade show and think like, this is crazy. This feels like it's anachronistic or, or, or from a different time. And probably not the first people to think to just take a trade show and put it online. But I think what most folks fundamentally kind of missed about that was just digitizing trade shows didn't actually solve the problem for brands or retailers. Really, the problem that retailers had in finding brands and trying out new products in their store was a risk problem. It was, I run a local clothing store or a gift shop or pet supply store and trying out new products is super risky for me because if those things don't sell, that shelf space is wasted and now my margin is compressed. And when I need to try out new products, I need to do so for you know a product that I love and resonates with me, but in as risk-free a manner as possible. And if all of a sudden I'm just doing that online, that doesn't help the problem. It actually makes it worse. Maybe putting it online helps the brand a little bit. It helps with distribution, but it certainly doesn't help the retailer. And I think the, the insight that we had was how do we de-risk this equation for the retailer? And you know, one of the big ways that we ultimately did that was offering free returns as well as underwriting in net 60. So you don't have to pay as a retailer until 60 days after you buy the product on fair. So that kind of allows you to actually sell the product through before you have to pay fair. And I think that fundamentally de-risked the equation for retailers and allowed them to move some of this purchasing online and then you know optimize in a way they couldn't before 
what they carried in their store. And I think that insight also probably wouldn't have been possible 15 years ago because maybe the data wouldn't have been available to offer that. And probably if we hadn't had our background at Square, as well as some of our co-founders and Danielle and Marcello had a background in risk and data, that was one really big insight. I think the second insight, you know, to take a step back, I think there was this narrative at the time, and it's probably a, a little bit more muted now, that, you know, offline retail was dying. And I think if you, you know, rewind six years, that was a predominant the rise of Amazon, the rise of all these folks, the predominant narrative was offline retail is dying. And I think that just wasn't our intuition and experience from Square. And I think we probably starting with intuition and then, you know, we're able to, to back up the narrative more with data felt like actually local independent retail, predominantly offline, but, you know, independent retail online as well, actually was not doing as bad as everybody thought. And as we dug in, I think we, we put this narrative together that the right investors and, and the contrarian investors are the ones who understood retail a little bit better really grokked, which was think about the last 50 years of retail. The predominant narrative, you know, up until very recently was the rise of big box retailers and the UK, Marks and Spencers are here in the US, Walmart or Target. And these folks came to dominate the retail landscape with a value prop that was around price and selection. So they said, hey, I'm going to offer you the most selection at the lowest price. And they grew like crazy. And that was an amazing value prop up until about 20 years ago, where all of a sudden with you know online retailers, a world where you said, hey, I'm going to offer the lowest prices and the most selection. That value prop got eroded pretty quickly. Amazon is going to do that better than you 10 out of 10 times. Meanwhile, if you look at local retail, you know any local retailers, you know, one, two, three, 10 location chains in your communities that survived the last 50 years, they were doing so where they were already competing against folks who maybe had you know lower prices and more selection. And they had built a value prop around community, curation, the experience you had in the store. So when big box or when online came around, you know, these folks had had a value prop that was already differentiated from them by virtue of competing against big box. And so what happened was the death of offline retail, as we dug in more, was more the death of big box than it was the death of local. And in fact, local was actually doing quite well. Our favorite example of this, I think this has been in, you know, every fair pitch deck forever is bookstores. So in the U.S., the biggest or second biggest big box bookstore was called Borders. And Borders went under in, I think, like 2007. And you know, if you look at the headlines, then everybody said, oh, Borders has gone under. That's the end of offline book sales. Like you can't possibly imagine a better category. It was Amazon's first category. Now big box is going under. And if you look at what's happened since 2007, the number of independent bookstores has actually doubled in America. And you kind of see this across every category, which is big box, which I think had more fragile business models and, and was a little bit more vulnerable, kind of collapses or, or goes under given the, the rise of online. And that creates a ton of white space, some of which gets taken by online, but a lot of which gets taken by local and, and offline retail. And I think we saw this trend and, and we dug in and the numbers started to support it. And we felt like that was despite the fact that a lot of these smaller retailers don't really have a technology platform helping them, you know, giving them somebody to compete. They were kind of surviving, competing, despite a lack of tools, in our opinion, that really kind of became the, the vision and the mission of FAIR, which was how can we take, you know, every independent retailer and brand around the world, connect them, you know, bring them together on a platform that basically gives them the same power and tools and leverage that the Amazons or the Walmarts have of the world. And when you look at kind of the value props that FAIR offers today, I think it reflects that. So FAIR is, you know, to really simply say it, it's an online marketplace that connects brands and retailers. And the reason that retailers come to FAIR today is a fewfold. The first is, is free returns. 
So if a product doesn't sell, they can return it to fair. By the way, you know, big box or Amazon's always been able to push product back to folks that don't sell. And now for the first time, you know, local and independent retail can. We underwrite them and, and give them the opportunity to pay in what's called net 60. So 60 days later, we extend them a little bit of credit. Again, the big folks have always gotten this. They've always been able to do this. And then we give them really smart recommendations for what's going to sell in their store. You know, at this point, we've processed a lot of volume. We've connected a lot of brands and retailers. So we can say, you know, hey, Dan's local store, here's 10 things that we think will sell. In fact, we guarantee we'll sell in your store. And you're still going to kind of shop and you're going to use the expression of, of what you know will sell to your customers. But that helps you kind of as a jumping off point. And again, the big folks have always had this. They've had tons of smart people crunching numbers all the time to figure out what products to carry. And for us, we want to give that same power to, to the little folks. That's kind of like the second insight, which was offline retail and the narrative around the death of offline retail, we think was probably, you know, grossly applied across the board. When in reality, local independent retail, we felt like was quite strong, even though it didn't have, you know, the technology partner that it should. And that's, you know, without even starting to touch the other side of the table, which is I think consumer preferences um, are only moving and accelerating in a direction that is more interested in things that are made locally, more interested in supporting communities and independent brands. And, you know, our hope at FAIR is you know, we can help those customers on both sides and create more vibrant communities around the world. So that's what it is today. How close is that to the original vision? Because it is an exceptionally large vision, ridiculously complicated in reality. Did it start that way and you're kind of like flabbergasted it's ended that way? Or did it start in a sort of different direction and it's evolved? You know, it's it's pretty remarkable. I think if you look at our you know, initial YC video, or even the presentation after probably a demo day, it's very, very similar to where we are today, at least at the atomic unit of how do we connect brands and retailers and the notion of kind of free returns um, and some of those other value props for retailers. I think that some of the other kind of tools and things that we're building on top, we probably didn't necessarily fathom or, or feel like was appropriate or we had permission to think at that point or, or that big, but a lot of the kind of atomic unit of what we're building for our customers was there. And I think really born out of a customer problem that, that we knew well and had experienced ourselves. Doesn't mean there weren't worse ideas before FAIR that, that fell by the wayside. But I think the once it became kind of FAIR and this notion of, of really a wholesale marketplace to connect brands and retailers, it, it was remarkably similar to kind of where it ended up. It's interesting. It sort of feels like if FAIR, Shopify, and Etsy all just merged, you could probably just take on Amazon. <laughs> I mean, the, the goal is definitely how do we build a platform to help our retailers and brands compete with the big folks, Amazon of which is the biggest. And, you know, the most popular filter on our website when retailers are shopping is not sold on Amazon. You know, when, when a retailer shows up to try to find products, the number one thing they want to do is find something that's not on Amazon. So I do think we are, you know, hoping to be a, a counterbalance and are probably reaction, uh, a reflection of a reaction from consumers against some of those trends. Okay, so... Um might be a difficult question, but, you know, I noticed on your on your LinkedIn, you know, you joined as a co-founder and then you sort of rejoined later. What's the story there? Yeah. So why I left FAIR and came back is not something I've talked a ton about. You know, it was a hard moment for me. So, you know, I mentioned kind of where we were. And at this point, I think, you know, we had the team down and, and we were ready to we'd start a building. We had just gotten to YC. So we're raising our first pre-seed was kind of part of going to that YC round at the end of 2016. And when it was time to kind of actually start YC, I just kind of personally felt I wasn't in a good enough place with kind of my own mental health and, and where I was to take on such an unstructured journey. And I think 
you know, I've struggled my entire life with mental health and, and more specifically OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Unfortunately, it's not the kind of OCD you joke about where you're like, oh, I'm so OCD. I have to organize all my clothes all the time. I think my fiance would probably really like if that's how it manifested. I'm actually quite unorganized. It, it manifests for me, unfortunately, differently with anxiety. And then, you know, without getting into too much details, some ticks or habits or rituals or things that can be kind of quite impeding to my life. And it's something that I have battled my entire life. There's been big stretches where it's been basically not noticeable, you know, for years on end. Um, and there's been other stretches where it's been quite disruptive to my life, candidly. And this was kind of one of those times I had a good amount of change in my life. Um, I think there were, you know, different triggers that kind of made it particularly difficult for me. And I was a little bit caught off guard, candidly, with how it made me feel. And so it was really difficult. I mean, this was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to start a company. This was as good of a situation as you can imagine. Some of my best friends, an amazing team, space I was excited about. We were you know, headed to YC. And also there's a little bit of guilt around, like, what was I going to derail the thing if they saw somebody was leaving um, or if YC saw somebody was leaving, which ultimately it didn't. And yeah, so it was, it was really hard. I had a lot of honest conversations with my co-founders and um, I do think it was probably the right decision for me at the time and allowed me to be in a more structured environment, not take that at the moment, but it was really hard. And, you know, coming back was just as hard, which I can talk about as well. But I remember joking, I'd come back at some point with them, not knowing if it would be real or not. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a part of my journey at this point. And I think something that I have some regrets about, but I also know that that time was the, the right thing for me. And like when you reflect on, you know, the moments where this manifests and it's in your life so much, do they tend to be around periods of great stress? Is it moving? Is it transition periods? You know, I've worked through this a lot and it's sometimes predictable and sometimes not. Like stress can definitely be a component of it, but there's also times where I'm wildly stressed and it doesn't. So I think what can be challenging about it for me is that it can be unpredictable. And it's, I think, like most things when I work on it and I, I focus on it or I'm doing behavioral therapy around it, it gets better. And so there's an element of kind of like having to put in the work and, and focus as well. I do think it, at that moment, it was partially the stress of starting of the company getting off the ground and, and partially just, you know, a lot of life disruptions and changes at once, which I've gotten a little bit better about managing and, and thinking through as I've kind of understood a little bit better the impact they can have on me. I think it also, it had also followed a period of it not really being an issue for me. So I think sometimes you get a little bit a little bit arrogant about where you're at and your headspace and your invincibility around it. Yeah, I think it might be a thing of the past. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that I've come to realize and, you know, those things are always there and they're always lurking. And so you've just got to always be aware of that and just be mindful of it and not kind of assume you've conquered it, which is hard because there's lots of other things in your life where you kind of tackle it, you tick it off and you move on. But this isn't one of those things. I think I was probably less open than I would be now and I've gotten better at talking about it. And I think talking about things takes the power away from them to a certain extent. But with at least you know, Max, who was one of our co-founders that I'd probably known the best and had you know, lived with beforehand and you know, worked super closely with, I don't think it was a surprise to him. Um, and I think he had kind of seen a little bit of the journey. So it was probably more open with him than the others, though over time kind of got more open with everybody and, and I'm trying to continue to do that. And I think those conversations were there's the personal side of it and there's obviously like the business side of it and how do you make sure that you know, a co-founder leaving a company very early is not always a good sign. And I think it was, the team was strong enough. The stage was was still early enough where it was okay. And general momentum, I think was there where it kind of assuaged those concerns more broadly, but it was definitely difficult. I think the foundation of trust and honesty between everybody helped and probably also set the foundation for you know a year and a half or two years when I came back. I don't think it, it would have worked if it weren't for that. 
Yeah, because it's a very unusual scenario, right? It's very unusual to leave your company so early and be like, you know, but I might come back and everyone be like, yeah, 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 cool. And then actually you will agree that it actually does. So I know that the next period of your life, you went to Open Door. Take us through the next part of the journey. So you're leaving your own company. How long do you spend in the wild assessing what you've done with your life or not? How long until you move on to the next role? Take us through like basically the next few years, what's happened? Yeah, I think when I when I realized that I wasn't going to stay with Fair and kind of needed something more structured, and it might sound crazy to go to Open Doors, probably a hundred person startup at that point, but but certainly you know much more structured. And it was also a little bit later, and so I had some time in between. I, I realized if I wasn't going to be you know zero to one, I wanted to have an you know ideally another ride as similar to Square, uh, maybe with a bit of a different seat where I could learn as much as possible. And Open Door gave me an amazing opportunity to lead growth and and, and a big chunk of go to market. For folks who aren't familiar, kind of Open Door was you know, a place where you can buy and sell homes online. Kind of the first, kind of pioneered this notion of I think what folks are calling you know quote unquote i buyers or or online buyers. And so it was a, a a really fascinating idea with a big kind of customer impact. You know, helping folks you know the most important and expensive transaction of their lives do so kind of more seamlessly and, and hopefully more cost efficient as well. And so for me, it was about a situation where an amazing team really grateful for the op- like an amazing opportunity that they gave me there as well and learned a ton in you know probably that year and a half two years that I was there in particularly kind of a juxtaposition to square and having another movie and seeing another company go through that that phase besides just square because I think you can kind of risk learning too many lessons from one place so that experience was almost perfect for me in, in terms of what what I learned the, the people there um, and the opportunity that I, that I had I think for me there was kind of always this thing in the back of my head around, do I go back to fair? Is that, you know, the right place for me? I probably stayed close to the company over, over that time period, you know, whether it was because I had close friends there, obviously an emotional connection to it and some financial incentive. And so I think those conversations probably a year, a year and a half in started more seriously. And I felt like I was in a better place with my mental health and my ability to maybe take on the challenges that come with smaller and kind of more chaotic company. But you know, it was obviously not very straightforward, putting aside the, the difficulty of leaving Open Door and, and the opportunity that I had there, going back to something where I felt like I had missed part of the ride, I think had a lot of emotionality and, and questions associated with it. You know, if I came back, would I feel like a founder at all? Or would I feel like a fraud? I'd missed these moments. And how would I feel like the company was mine, but not take credit for the stuff that happened when I wasn't there? Would I throw off the balance of the other three co-founders who had obviously been wildly successful while I was gone. My relationship with Max, who was the CEO, but also a close friend, what would, what would that be like? So I think it was it was definitely a process of working through those, spent a lot of time with, with all three of them to make sure that we felt good about what that looked like, as well as the broader company and some other folks and investors as well. You know, it, it was probably like hiring a normal senior exec, but then multiplied with a layer of emotionality on top of it. That, that probably wasn't it was a little unique. So it was definitely a process, but I think ultimately got to a good spot on some of those those questions. And as well as just there was unknowns and you're only going to know once you jump in and kind of feeling like I had missed this opportunity to jump in before. And I, I just wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do it again and went for it. What's been the most challenging part of your journey with FAIR then? On the personal side, the most challenging part is, you know, I once had a mentor tell me that, uh, the prize for winning the donut eating competition is more donuts. And that kind of stuck with me as 
things don't necessarily get easier and the, the kind of more you do, the more you have to do. And I think that's been something that I've learned along the way, you know, with every fundraise or every new milestone, you're kind of recommitting to your customers, to your employees, to your investors that you're going to like kind of get to that next phase now. And I think I had a notion that it would get easier, but I think in reality, the stakes almost only get higher and it gets harder. And like that person said forever ago, the prize for winning the competition is more donuts. And the adjective I would use to describe that emotion is unrelenting. It's kind of like this unrelenting thing that keeps coming. And so you both have to, one, figure out how to be at peace with the unrelenting nature of it and how you don't kind of let it overwhelm you at any given time. One of the tricks I used to do that is like, I always like to think about the problems a year ago or two years ago, how quaint they seem to me now. And I like to think whatever I'm facing today, in a year from now, I'm going to look back and wish these were the problems I had. I'm going to pine for the days that whatever is terrifying for me right now, in the future, I'll pine for those days. And I think that's kind of helped me think and contextualize the unrelenting nature of it. And then there's, I think, another accompanying emotion to that, which is around yourself and scaling. And okay, well, if the stakes are going to get higher and we're going to kind of keep going, how do I scale myself and do right by the business and all the other employees? And where are the times where I have to give up some of my world or I have to you know, make sure to hire or I have to be honest about my shortcomings or see this shortcoming that's coming down the line and make sure I you know, get a mentor or get somebody to help me with it. And it's really hard to step back and kind of keep doing that and like keep entering that mode of where am I right now? Where am I going to go? What do I need to fix? Because of kind of the, the state's getting higher. And I think continuing to force myself to do that, to hold you know the other leaders in the company accountable and, and be held accountable to that too, is another thing that I think has helped with that, but been super challenging. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so what's the best piece of advice you've ever got? This is funny because my dad probably doesn't even remember telling me this. I remember my dad once telling me, and maybe it was because there was something going on with the business or he was working hard, but you know, it's always great to be smarter than the other guy or more creative or crafty. But at the end of the day, a lot of time you just got to outwork people. And I think just kind of understanding the value of that hard work and that sometimes, you know, even if you have the other stuff, it's what you need to get where you want to be. And I think you know, I probably witnessed that from him growing up, but I remember that kind of sticking with me as a piece of advice. There's no substitute for hard work at the end of the day. And basically probably almost nobody's in the history of humankind has been successful absent hard work. It's a good reminder. I also love this saying, life is the sum of your choices, because at the end of the day, it's not kind of about what you say. It's really about what you do and the choices that you make and kind of the accumulation of those over time end up kind of defining who you are and what you do. And I also love it because it's empowering. It's like choices, like, you know, you make choices and it, I think, puts a little bit of the onus on you as well as kind of the opportunity to, to make those choices and kind of be uh, not a passive actor in what's playing out. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. You never know. Sometimes you do something small and you think, oh, 
that can be nice addition. And all of a sudden there is a huge adoption and it's really changing the game for the users or for the revenue and you see a meaningful uptick from it. And sometimes you really think that something is going to be really big and you work a long time on it and then you release it and it's not, it's a flop. That was Adi Tatarko, the CEO and co-founder of Howls, a platform where people doing up their homes can find the right people to do the work. The funny thing is, Adi quit tech earlier in her career. She'd had enough of it. So how did she end up running this tech behemoth now worth billions? Tune in and find out. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.